As you can probably imagine, I follow a lot of history meme pages. And no doubt most of you do too. And the topic of today's show came up on one of these meme pages, but not in the way that I thought it would. And it's a topic that I've had sitting on my to-do pile for quite some time, but this meme inspired me to finish the draft and put this bonus show out. Because this history meme page posted a photo of the Vasa, the most well-preserved 17th century sailing ship in the world. And the caption of the photo was, This is the Swedish warship Vasa, the most well-preserved ship from the 17th century. And the Vasa is indeed impeccably preserved, especially for a wooden sailing vessel about four centuries old. I will not dispute that. That is objectively true. But there's a reason that the Vasa is the most well-preserved sailing ship in the world. Oh boy, is there a reason. Adjusted for inflation, the Vasa is one of the most expensive ships ever built. And it is truly an exquisitely designed ship. It is beautiful and ornate and one of the sexiest vessels to ever hit the water. Arr, here be a fine vessel, the yarest river-going boat there be. I'll take it. Arr, I don't know what I'm doing. And it was also one of the most powerful warships in the world at the time. This thing was absolutely bristling with cannons. It had enough firepower to level a city on its own. The Vasa was the most amazing warship in the world by a considerable margin. Now, you might be wondering why this warship is so well-preserved. You don't get a lot of well-preserved warships on account of the war part of that name. Well, buckle up, because this is quite the tale. This is the story of the Vasa, the big warship that couldn't. So, as with a lot of European history... The backstory to this is because of a religious tiff. As a rule of thumb, if you want to know why something happened in history, especially in the Middle Ages, it's because people were fighting over sky wizards. In this case, we're talking about the Thirty Years' War, because people aren't terribly imaginative when naming their wars. We've got a war called World War II, for God's sake. Although the Thirty Years' War is notable because it did actually go for 30 years. 1618 to 1648, unlike, say, the Hundred Years' War, which went for 116 years. And I'm absolutely not going to go into it in any depth right now, the Thirty Years' War, because it is super complex, but it all comes down to the religious war between the Catholics and the Protestants, which is a topic that I've danced around on a number of shows, and I do promise to get around to it properly one day, just not today. What you need to know is that the Catholic Church was the major player in Europe for most of the Middle Ages, and the Catholic Church is basically the largest Ponzi scheme in history. First, let me assure you that this is not one of those shady pyramid schemes you've been hearing about. (laughs) No, sir. Our model is the trapezoid. Then, in 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther said, I think that religion should be more about God and less about shaking people down for all of their money, and then Europe went to war with each other, and hundreds of thousands of people were killed because they all had a slightly different interpretation about the same sky wizard. So Europe got pretty much split down the middle depending on whether you were a traditional Catholic or one of Martin Luther's new movement, a Protestant. 
Eastern Europe has always had their own crazy Christian shit going on, so they don't come into it. And then there were also super Protestants called Anabaptists, but everyone hated them. But basically, it's a split between Catholics and Protestants. So that's the very loose background. Like I say, a topic for another day. Sweden, during this time, was Protestant, and their biggest enemy was Poland, who were Catholic. And Poland was also Lithuania at this point, but that's more just trivia. And I will stress again that these two sides believe in 99% exactly the same thing. But they're at war with each other over whether you can sell tickets into heaven. I will go into indulgences one day, but not today. So the king of Sweden at the time was a dude by the name of Gustav Adolf. She had a dream about the king of Sweden. And as ever, we can always date history by whether people are still called Adolf. We don't call him that today, though, because it turns out that Gustav Adolf was awesome enough to earn the name Gustavus the Great. A diamond car with the platinum wheels. Gustavus the Great of Sweden is one of the most successful kings of any country of any time. He was a great king, and he was an even better general. Gustav is considered one of the founding fathers of modern warfare. He was all about combined arms. So cavalry supports infantry, supports artillery, who support the cavalry, and they all work together instead of everyone doing their own thing. And this is a bigger deal than you might think. Most European armies throughout history did not have combined arms. Most of the time, the cavalry did not give a single shit about anyone who wasn't cavalry. The French cavalry, for instance, on more than one occasion, rode down and slaughtered their own infantry just because they were in the way. Combined arms wasn't really a thing. But there was none of that on Gustave's watch, and largely because he wasn't a complete imbecile, he's recognized as one of the greatest generals of all time. Seriously, the bar for being a good general in ancient history is very, very low. Gustavus the Great was considered to be one of the great generals of all time by none other than George S. Patton, Napoleon Bonaparte, and Karl von Clausewitz, who quite literally wrote the book On War. So I'll go with their expert opinion and say that Gustav the Great was one of the greats. So to summarize the scene, you've got Gustavus the Great, the King of Sweden, just kicking ass and taking names. He is personally dragging Sweden to the top of the pops in the 1600s Europe. Sweden at this point was pretty much what we think of as modern-day Scandinavia. Sweden was a lot bigger then than it is now. And at this point, Sweden is at war with their mortal enemy Poland over their slightly different views regarding a late antiquity manual laborer and wizard. In fact, just last summer I went back to visit Jesus Christ. Turns out his abilities might have been exaggerated a bit. Sweden was also at war with the Holy Roman Empire, but, I mean, at this point in history, who wasn't, right? Gustavus has a great army, and he decides that he also needs to have a kick-ass navy, which is something you always want if you can get it. And a navy was something that Sweden really needed at this point. The Swedish Empire were an absolute force of nature on land, fighting off the Poles and the Holy Roman Empire with ease, but they were consistently getting beaten by the navies of these two powers. Gustav the Great needs a good navy, and he needs it, like, yesterday. So to spearhead his kick-ass navy, Gustavus the Great commissions the greatest 
warship in history. The Vasa. And Vasa was Gustav's family name, which is where that came from. Just like the British royals today are Windsors, Gustav the Great was Gustav Vasa. The construction of the Vasa commenced in 1626, and it was always intended to be the greatest ship in the world. And it was fucking enormous for that period. It was 70 meters long. For reference, that is the same size as the HMS Victory, which was Admiral Nelson's flagship at the Battle of Trafalgar, which was the biggest ship in the largest empire in history at their height, and that came over a century after the Vasa was built. This thing is not built for bullshit. And the Vasa is a work of art. I mean that. The hull was mostly carved wooden sculptures. I strongly urge everyone to go and look up some pictures of the Vasa. It is gorgeous. It's like if you got Michelangelo to design a warship. The thing is festooned with sculptures and statues. And yes, festooned is the only correct word for it. Every surface of the Vasa was some kind of art. Gustav said, I want a warship but I also want the entirety of Greco-Roman mythology told through the medium of fresco on it get to work. Every gun port had a sculpted lion's head on it, because it looks awesome and anyone getting shot by it would certainly take the time to admire the exquisite craftsmanship of the gun ports while they were being shot. A large amount of the Vasa was gold-plated, and the parts where it wasn't it was painted in bright red because it looks fucking awesome. I'll tell you what, throw a little hot rod red in there. Yes, that should help you keep a low profile. If you look at a photo now, it's all dark because it's just the wood that survived, so it looks dark and morbid. But when it was sailing, this thing looked like a floating disco ball. It was the Liberace of warships. You'd be able to see this thing coming for miles. I can't believe Liberace was gay. And then women loved him. I didn't see that one coming, you know. The art on the Vasa was always designed to be propaganda. It was a huge floating billboard for how awesome Sweden was in general and how awesome Gustav the Great was in particular. The figurehead, which on most ships is a mermaid or something, the figurehead on the Vasa was a stylized version of King Gustav himself as a lion mauling a bunch of Polish aristocrats. Subtle. And imagine being one of those Polish aristocrats. How would you feel if someone trolled you by building the world's largest warship to depict you specifically being hit on the head with a hammer by a lion man? The Vasa is like a 17th century diss track made of guns. Oh yeah, I almost forgot about the guns. The Vasa was always intended to not only be propaganda, but also practically one of the most powerful battleships in the world. It was functional. You drop this thing in the water and everything else had to get out of the way. So the Vasa had all of the guns. And I mean all of the guns. The ship was festooned with cannons. Yes, I know I've already said festooned, but it is the only appropriate word, meaning adorned as in architecturally. The Vasa had architectural cannons. The Vasa wasn't a ship with cannons, it was a bunch of cannons that just happened to have a ship attached to them. 
it had 72 cannons. And these were big cannons. These were artillery cannons. For the technically minded among you, this period is before guns were standardized by the size of the shot, but I will be using that mechanism anyway. Most ships used 12-pounder cannons. 12-pounders are exactly what you think of when you think of a pirate ship's cannons. The Vasa's guns were 24-pounders. They were twice as big. So the Vasa had more firepower than most nations. Swedish warships at the time, well, most warships actually, were built more around the idea of closing to board an enemy vessel. This was before the global tactical shift of naval warfare. So they had a single gun deck of 12-pounders to suppress the enemy crew while you closed in on them ready to board so that you might smite them with your sword. The Vasa, on the other hand, was custom-built to have two gun decks of 24-pounders. So it had guns on its guns so that it could gun while it gunned. For those of you playing at home, that's four times as much boomy boom. The whole idea of the Vasa was that you would see it coming a mile away and there'd be nothing you could do about it because it outranged and outgunned every other ship in the water at the time. Kind of like the Bismarck and the Tirpitz in World War II, only you don't have aircraft to deal with them, so you just have to run away from the Vasa. Now, as you might imagine, coming up with the largest warship ever conceived by man takes some time. Time which the Swedish engineers didn't have. Because King Gustav, he was rather insistent on being present during the design and construction process, and he was not a patient man. Any of you who have ever worked as a designer will know, you never want the client to be directly involved at any point in the process. And I can only imagine how exponentially worse it gets when the client in question is one of Europe's most powerful kings. Gustav kept saying that he wanted the ship to be bigger, he wanted to have more statues and more paintings on it, and more to the point, he wanted it to have more guns. It needs more guns. And that's how, with a few minor adjustments, you can turn a regular gun into five guns. Remember how I said it had 72 guns? It was originally designed to have about half that. And then Gustav came into the room and said, did I fucking stutter? Put more guns on it. But where will the crew sleep? They can sleep on a fucking gun for all I care. Put more guns on it. And the leading design principle became, how many guns can we put on this ship, instead of more mundane questions like, can a floating vessel physically carry that many guns? Which, as you're no doubt beginning to suspect, is about to become a bit of an issue. The upper deck of the Vasa was originally supposed to have 18 12-pounder cannons. This is a very impressive amount of what are the staple-size cannons. This alone would have instantly made the Vasa one of the most dominant vessels in the world. But Gustav didn't like that. He said that the upper gun deck should have 36 24-pounder cannons, so double in both quantity and caliber. And it should be mentioned that these cannons were all bronze, not iron. Bronze is denser than iron, so these are quite a bit heavier already. And he wants to double it. And here is why this is a problem. If you've ever seen a sailing warship in real life compared to a sailing warship in movies or video games, you'll already know what I'm talking about. 
Even if you didn't notice it at the time, you'll notice it now. And for this example, I'm going to use the video game Assassin's Creed Black Flag as the example. In Black Flag, you play as the notorious pirate Edward Kenway as he sails the Spanish main in his pirate ship, the Jackdaw. And as you sail along, you're at the helm, steering the ship, and if you give the order to fire the cannons, you see your crew there on the deck loading the cannons and firing, and it's very satisfying, and I heavily recommend everyone play Black Flag. Bear down on our And that was a deliberate design decision by the makers of the game, to have the cannons there on the deck where you can see them. Because they were making a video game, and it's a lot more fun to see the cannons firing. You want to see the pirate ship being a pirate ship. Real life, though, that's a lot more boring. Because there's no fucking way you'd put cannons on the main deck of a ship. For one thing, there's a risk that they'd fall off in turbulent seas, but the main reason you don't actually have cannons on the main deck is because putting that much weight on the upper deck makes it super top-heavy. And that's exactly what they did to the Vasa. This thing had a higher center of gravity than a mid-90s Land Rover and was way more likely to roll over. I was watching Dateline and Stone Phillips said SUVs always roll over when you turn sharply and the gas tanks explode at the drop of a hat. But wait, there's more. There were two teams building the Vasa, one for each side of the ship. One side of the ship was being built by a Swedish team the other side of the ship was being built by some Dutch contractors. Which usually wouldn't be a big deal, but this is a couple of centuries before the metric system. Which, if you haven't listened to the show on the metric system already, go and do that. It's one of the ones that I'm most proud of. So you had half of the Vasa being built by a Swedish crew in Swedish feet, which is based around 12 inches, and the other half being built by a Dutch team using Amsterdam feet which is base 11 inches. Nobody noticed this during construction because the whole thing was being rushed into production due to there being multiple wars happening because of the Sky Wizard. In short, the Vasa was heavier on the port side. Now you can add to that about 1,024-pound cannonballs and the gunpowder necessary to fire those cannonballs and now add in the crew and the provisions. This is going to be fun. On August 10th, 1628, the Vasa launched in Stockholm Harbour. Was it actually ready to launch? Who knows? But that ship was going to launch on that day, come maybe hell, and definitely high water. Thousands of people flocked to the harbour to watch the launch of the greatest warship ever built. This was a historic day. Everyone wanted to be there to watch the Vasa launch. It would be a day to tell your grandkids about. And oh boy, would this be a day to tell your grandkids about. Hell, we're still talking about it 400 years later. The Vasa sailed out of the docks and passed the royal palace of Sweden. As it passed where the king was watching on, the Vasa let loose a salute with its cannons. So you know what that means. You fire the guns as a salute. Nowadays it's reserved for when people die. So that's what the Vasa did. They opened up all of the gun ports and fired a salute to the great king Gustavus Adolphus. And this salute, this is important. Because to do this, the crew of the Vasa had to open the gun ports. You don't want to be firing the guns with the ports closed. As luck would have it, 
Just after the salute was fired, a gust of wind blew across Stockholm Harbour. Not a hurricane or anything, just a strong breeze. And it just so happened that this breeze blew the ship towards its port side. You remember the port side is the bad side. The Vasa listed heavily. Now, it needs to be said that there were concerns during construction that the ship was top-heavy. Not all of the problems in construction were noticed, but there were plenty in the Navy who realized that this ship had a very high center of gravity, even if they didn't quite realize the physics of why that was. There are letters from a couple of high-ranking admirals warning the king that this ship was a potential death trap. And the king decided to press on anyway. He wanted his big-ass warship, and he wanted it now. So when this gust of wind blew the Vasa towards its port side and it began to tip, the crew were ready. They all rushed to the starboard side of the ship to try and balance out the weight. And I just want everyone here to just imagine this scene for a moment. The biggest warship in the world, the pride of the Swedish Empire, which is a sizable empire at this point, this ship is almost tipping in a breeze and the crew of the ship is currently running from side to side to try and balance it out while Yakety Sax plays in the background. The weight did balance out, and the Vasa was righted. But then, inertia being what it is, it tipped back towards starboard. So the crew ran to the port. And then, as it happened, another gust of wind this one even stronger than the first, hit the Vasa, and from then on, it was goodnight Irene. The ship tipped enough that the lower gun ports on the port side fell below the waterline. Gun ports that were open, if we recall, to fire a salute to the king. In case you haven't guessed, an open window below the waterline is not a good thing on a ship. By all accounts, and remember that there are over 10,000 people watching from the shore a couple of hundred meters away, by all accounts, the ship sank in less than five minutes. Also present were a number of foreign dignitaries, including some from Poland and the HRE, who had a lot of fun watching all of this take place. From the time when it launched to the time the Vasa hit the bottom of Stockholm Harbour was probably about 15 minutes. This show has already lasted longer than the Vasa did. 30 people went down with it. The Vasa sank so quickly that people on the lower decks simply did not have enough time to get out before the ship was already submerged. It went straight to the bottom. And there the Vasa lay for over 300 years. In the immediate aftermath, King Gustav demanded an intensive investigation into this tremendous national embarrassment. After much inquiry, it was determined that while the entire construction of the Vasa was a shit show, the person most to blame was King Gustav himself for his constant interfering with the design process. And upon receiving this report, naturally, the king declared that the sinking of the Vasa was an act of God and that nobody would ever know what the true cause of the disaster was. 
terrible mystery that, let's not explore it further. Because of where the Vasa sank, smack bang in the middle of Stockholm Harbour, it was amazingly well preserved. Harbours, by their very nature, are not subject to the turbulent forces of the open ocean, and the sheer cold of that part of the world meant that the Vasa was effectively perfectly preserved, it was mummified. And then there's the fact that the Industrial Revolution happened, and for the majority of the time that the Vasa was underwater, Stockholm Harbour was incredibly polluted, which meant that most of the microbial organisms who would have consumed a wooden sailing ship were killed off by water that was, at that point, mostly arsenic. Efforts to salvage the ship began in 1961. They finished in the 90s. It wasn't like the Titanic where we needed James Cameron to go and look for it. Everyone knew where it was because there were thousands of people watching it sink and pointing and laughing. It took so long because you need to make sure that you don't break anything while you go salvaging this ship. Getting a ship to the bottom of the ocean is easy, but the reverse is not true. Getting it up is very hard. Yeah, snigger at that. It took over 30 years for the ship to be properly salvaged, because in that period, the Swedes have learned a thing or two about being careful, and the ship was only fully resurfaced in the 90s, and then it was placed into a custom-built museum in Stockholm. And of note, there was one plan to float the ship by filling it with, I shit you not, a whole bunch of ping-pong balls, but that person was called an idiot and told to leave until sufficient technology was developed to actually resurface the ship. It took that long because of the preservation efforts, which are actually quite remarkable. I highly suggest anyone go and explore how they preserve the Vasa. Essentially, they had to keep the ship submerged, because if it dried out, then it would begin to rot. So they had to slowly raise the Vasa inch by inch, and then they slowly, slowly, slowly treated every single timber on the ship to preserve it, a process which took three decades. And, of course, they had to periodically stop and deal with the corpses. I forgot about the corpses. In something that you can look up in your own time, uh, because it's creepy, they actually found a skeleton with a perfectly preserved brain, which happened because of some crazy, funky, complicated science. But, yeah, sitting in the ship was a skeleton with a perfectly preserved brain in it. Like, that's not creepy at all. And that's the story of the Vasa. The Vasa is today... Four centuries after it sank, over 95% the same ship as it was when it sank. It's not some ship of Theseus situation, it's the ship of Gustav, and it has barely changed. And it is in that state because of the fact that it sank within minutes of launching. Here lies one 17th century warship. Mint condition, never used. So when you see a meme online saying that the Vasa is the most perfectly preserved 17th century sailing ship in the world, well, now you know that the meme is absolutely correct, but it's not telling you the whole story. It's kind of like saying that the town of Pripyat is a fascinating snapshot of 1986 Soviet Ukraine, which is indeed correct, but there's just a teensy bit more to the story. 50,000 people used to live in the city. Now it's a ghost town. 